Hi, this is The Rock Podcast, and I'm Denny Somak. I'm a rock historian, producer, and best-selling author. I've been collecting thousands of interviews over the years. My archives are extensive, and we also present newly recorded conversations. That's what we have on this episode. And coincidentally, it's the anniversary of Woodstock, and my guest is one of the performers that played there. Her name is Melanie and she's just released a new recording as part of a tribute album to Pete Ham. Who is Pete Ham? Well, he's a Welsh singer, songwriter, and guitarist, best known as lead vocalist and composer for the 70s rock band Badfinger, discovered by Paul McCartney and signed to the Beatles' Apple Records. Their hit songs include No Matter What, Day After Day, and Baby Blue. He's also the co-writer of the ballad Without You, a worldwide hit for Harry Nilsson. YNT Music has released a special album, Shine On, a tribute to Pete Ham, featuring 35 new recordings of songs written by Pete. And Melanie's featured on the song Without You. It was originally a number one song for Nilsson and later a top five song for Mariah Carey. Anyway, I've never had the chance to speak with Melanie until this episode of The Rock Podcast. And she was just fantastic. Her career has been like a Hollywood movie. She was just starting out and was the first artist booked to play Woodstock, almost a year before the concert took place. But basically, Melanie was an unknown when she walked onto the Woodstock stage and sang for half a million people. By the end of her set, she was a star. Melanie, welcome yes. to the Rock Podcast. This thank is, you. Thank you. Nice to here. I have my whole life I've been interviewing people and producing radio and TV and rec- all sorts of stuff. And I don't know why, but I have never had the opportunity to speak with you. And it's a pleasure. So thank you for doing it. They've, they've been keeping you from me. <laughs> <laughs> and coincidentally, this is the anniversary of Woodstock, the 54th. It episode. is, 54. So, it's magical. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the new song that's out that you sing. And we're going to, you know, revisit uh, your catalog and find out what you're up to today and, and all okay. that. I was just talking to somebody who said they saw you recently in Dallas and to say hi. I don't know how long ago that was. Um, <laughs> anyway, so welcome to the Rock Podcast. Let's just start. We'll talk about your new stuff and, and all okay. that. The reason that I contacted you originally was because you were on a new tribute album to Pete Ham. For those That's that right. don't know, Pete Ham is one of the great songwriters uh, who unfortunately died at a very young age. He was in a band called Badfinger, which- I uh, know that band well. <laughs> Beatles uh, Apple label. And he wrote some amazing songs, including Without You, which Nilsson covered. And a lot of people have covered. And you were the one- that covers it on this tribute album and you do a fantastic job. So thank you. We'll thank you. That. I know this might I'm be a sorry. question, but you sing it with such conviction that we were talking. I don't know. What did you have in your mind by any chance? Were you singing that to your husband? You know, in great part. Yes. <laughs> um, because, you know, we were, we were everything. I mean, he was my producer. We were right. married for 50 years. You know, I had three children. He, 
we did everything together. I ran every song by him, lots of lines from songs I ran by him. Right. And, um, you know, that song really <laughs> was a gut wrencher, really. Well, anyway, you did a great job. It's on a new tribute album, and we'll post all this info and let people know. Uh, but I also want to let people know that you're doing something very unique. Uh, you're doing, if you go to um, Melanie's uh, Facebook page, you recorded this. You are doing uh, a live concert, and you're doing the songs you played at Woodstock, I believe, in the same order. That yes, it's them. really strange, because uh, up until a certain point, I didn't even know what my set was when I performed at Woodstock. And we were, they were doing a, I think the History Channel came to my house when I was living in Florida and they recorded a segment and they said, um, did you ever see your set? Mm -hmm. And I said, no, I didn't even know it was recorded. Right. And they showed it to me, I started to cry. I didn't even know I had really done a whole set. Yeah. You know, and um, I didn't have it written down. So I had no recollection of it off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. I knew I had done, I knew I had done uh, Beautiful People because that was the only song right. that was being played on underground radio at the time. Yeah. I think so. I, I, that I, when I, when I got um, the, the set list, I, decided, you know, I think I should do this for everybody who wasn't there <laughs> or for people who were there, they might remember. Yeah. Now, I, you know, I, I pride myself on being a bit of a rock historian and I sort of know your history and everything, but I started to dig deep and your story is amazing. Uh, you signed on to Woodstock, what, a year before? Tell me how that, it was like an accident because it were your husband's office. I never heard that story. Right. My, um, yeah, my husband was friends with uh, Artie Kornfeld and Phil Steinberg. They were all in the same building right down the street from the Brill building. Right. And we, um, you know, they said they're doing this with Michael Lang. They're trying to raise money for some sort of, uh, a creative center up in Woodstock and uh, Elliot Landy is going to do photographs and I thought it sounded really close cool. going to be called the Aquarian Exposition and I thought it sounded nice you know like a picnic you know thought it was a, you thought it was a garden party right with, with arts and crafts and, and I'll go shopping you know and get, you know get some tie-dye and love beads and all that and um i i was off in england for most of the rest of that year and i was working on a film score with uh john campbell who at, from that time he became huge as far as film scores and um i kind of liked the being behind the scenes you know i i was thinking yeah this is a lot lot safer <laughs> a lot safer back here you know just writing the songs right. and um being hands-on in the production and uh i was much more comfortable uh, i didn't really 
think that I was celebrity material. You know, um, I didn't seem to look right to myself and I didn't, I wasn't a, a social butterfly. You know, I wasn't easily easy with people. And I went into a room, a crowded room and I'd go to the corner. You know, if somebody wanted to talk to me, they had to find me. And and you were one of only three women that were headliners, Joan Baez, of course, Janis Joplin, and, and you. Now, uh, just remind me, where, what day and slot were you scheduled for, and what day and slot did you end up? Because I wasn't... I don't know when I was scheduled, but I arrived um, the morning of, and we couldn't get through, of course, because the throughway was closing and all kinds of traffic and um i i got to a phone booth and found out that i had to go to a different place and so i went and i followed directions my, it was my mother who took me right. my peter peter was he was in england doing the film score this was like big stuff you know a film score with um olivia hussey who had just come off the her Romeo and Juliet stellar performance. And um, so that's what I was doing. And I just came home to do this picnic and uh, my mom drives me and we're hit traffic and I get to the place and it's a, a motel. And I knew at that point for sure the traffic had a lot to do with what was happening here. And the media was all around the whole hotel tell and I get walking in the front door and there's Sly Stone walks by and I had never met a famous person. <laughs> I was just, I mean, I, 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 the most famous person I had met was Rod Stewart and he wasn't Rod Stewart yet. He right. was still part of the group, the Small Faces. Right. And um, so there, I think it was still called the Small Faces, right? I think it was the Jeff Beck group because they were supposed to play Woodstock and the whole band, Ronnie Wood, Rods, everybody showed up but Jeff. Jeff didn't show up, so they didn't play. Oh, oh. so uh, the, when I went on, um, I, I was rushed to a helicopter and I'm about to get in. And uh, first of all, I thought, why can't we just like go by car? You know, why can't you just... Don't we have a Jeep or something? <laughs> you know, and he says, no, no, I can't get there by car. I have to go in the helicopter. So my mother and I are running and we go into the helicopter. And uh, the guy said, Who's she? And that's my mother. And he said, Oh, 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 no, mom. Sorry, mom. Bye, mom. Only uh, road managers and, and musicians on the helicopter. So I, I said goodbye to my mother and went into the helicopter. And I mean, I thought the rush was because I must be on next, you mm -hmm. know, so it wasn't like a real schedule. Yeah. It, it, it For me, there wasn't, maybe for other people had schedules, but um, I didn't even have a backstage pass. You know, I didn't have that little thing, that ticket yeah. that would be worth so much now. <laughs> you had to show your license, right? It was what? That's true. You had to show your license to prove who you were. Uh, no, I I had to sing a couple of bars of beautiful people. 
It was the only song that anybody had ever heard of, of me because Roscoe from WNEW-FM was playing it. Right. And um, some college stations and stuff around the country. But so I, I assumed that as soon as I landed, they were going to put me on stage. Now, I'm near hysterical in the, in the helicopter. I look down and there's this stuff. And I said, what is that? And, and the pilot says, it's people. I said, no, no, I mean like all that colored stuff. And that's people. I said, people? I mean, it's miles and miles of people, wall to wall, people. And I, I thought, that's not possible. And then he points to the, the football field size stage, and that's the stage. I have to get out of here. I really have to get out of here. This can't be possible. So I land, and I'm, I'm starting to get, like, heaves. <laughs> and... Um, they, they told me, you know, here's your, go to that little tent there. And there was a, a small tent um, with a box and a dirt floor. And I'm thinking any minute, you know, Richie Havens is in his, I don't know, 50th minute of Freedom, Freedom, which came out of uh, Motherless Child. Right. And I knew, I, I didn't really even know him. Right. I, I knew of him, he was like the Pope of Greenwich Village, you know, he was, Richie Havens was the big deal of Greenwich Village. And um, so I, you know, I assumed they were gonna get me on right, but it didn't happen. And all day I waited in that tent. And every once in a while, someone would come in and say, you're on next. And then they would say, "Never mind." Or sometimes they didn't say "Never mind." Sometimes I would hear, someone else right. performing, I knew it wasn't me. And this went on all day until it started to rain and it was nighttime. Yeah. And uh, Ravi Shankar had gone on and, uh, and I think it was Wavy Gravy mm -hmm. had made some kind of announcement about Hog Farm, his collective was passing out candles and I, I, I sort of absorbed that message of inspiration. I didn't really remember exactly what he said, or, but it was something inspirational about the rain and keeping the rain away. And um, I thought, well, it's raining. It's really raining now. I think people are gonna go home. I mean, certainly anybody with any sense would go home. Right. And I thought, they're going to go home and this whole thing will be called off and I can go back to England and be invisible again. <laughs> and just in that reverie, someone came and said, you're on next. <laughs> and it turned out the incredible string band was supposed to go on at that exact time. But they refused because of the rain, which was sensible. They knew about electricity. I didn't. <laughs> they were veterans. I was not. So, um, you know, okay. And I, I lost. I, could, I couldn't breathe. I was sure I was going to be facing my certain doom. Right. I really, really did. I, I was by myself. I mean, 
there were three women, Joan Baez, me, and Janice Joplin, but, but Joan Baez was a star. Janice Joplin had a band, and I was, and who was Melanie? And that's how I felt, you know, I felt like, who is Melanie? How am I gonna possibly, I know three chords on guitar. I mean, I imply a lot with those three chords, but, uh, you know, I, I didn't feel like it was even a possibility that I could stand in front of that many people. I had never performed in front of more than a couple of hundred people in my whole life. Right, right. And again, you know, yeah, I did a show with Rod Stewart and The Faces, but it was before right. it was such a big deal. And there I was, you know, having to do that. So. Then I had a, an out-of-body experience, which I will just gloss over unless you want to go into it. Uh, go <laughs> but, into um, it. We, we, we like to hear some great stories. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, for, for a very long time, I didn't talk about it because, it, well, it, it was so profound, but it was so out there, you know, that I, and everybody always made Joe, what were you smoking? You know, <laughs> you must drink orange Kool-Aid or something, you know. I said, no, no, you know, in fact, I was I was probably the one of the only people at Woodstock who was completely straight. I did I was too um I was first of all, I was a vegetarian. Right. I was like, you know, only organic if I could possibly. Um I, you know, I was very strict with myself and uh, I didn't, wouldn't even think of, of smoking or altering myself in any way with anything. And um, so, you know, I was, I was there, you know, and I, I totally walked uh, on that plank. And at one point I was not in my body. I watched Melanie walk on the stage. I watched her sit down. And then at some point I came back to myself. And I always thought, I mean, it was such an astounding experience and to happen in front of all those people. I always sensed that part of, I mean, I, I went over really well. I mean, I resonated with the crowd in an amazing way. And beyond anything I could ever have imagined or believed could be possible. And yeah, I thought they'd either be leaving, scrambling, going to sleep, doing anything but watching me. Uh, and and then there I was, you know, with all these people in front of me. And we we're resonating, you know, and, and there was this... I'm watching the hillside light up with candles in the rain. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> you know, people, people sometimes say, oh, I saw you do candles in the rain at Woodstock. <laughs> no, well, you we didn't. You hadn't written it yet, right? <laughs> hadn't written it yet. <laughs> but um, I, I get the point, you know. <laughs> Memory is a funny thing. It's a really funny thing. All right, well, we're going to ask you about different songs, but since we're talking about candles, tell us about the writing of that. We all know it was inspired. Yeah, well, um, as far as I remember, I had part of that song in my head, leaving, 
lay down, lay down, candles in the rain, men can live as brothers, candles in the rain, and little sisters of the sun lit candles. I mean, I just had all these lines were, you know, swimming around in my head and the chorus, the anthemic part was in my head, leaving Woodstock. Right. And I have so little memory of how I got back with my mother. <laughs> she she uh, had to take me home, you know, so, um, but I have people say, when did you see your mother? I, I don't remember. <laughs> I, I just got off the stage and next I was on panel discussions with anthropologists, you know, discussing the significance of this event. I was so ill-equipped, you know, to be articulating anything, you know. How there old are people, you? You're 19? Uh, yeah, around there. <laughs> so, so uh, and I was a very young, uh, be, be, when you're an introvert, which I was very much always an introvert, um, you tend to age slower because you're you're just with yourself you know you don't have a big peer group who's making those steps you know uh getting older and stuff so i was just i was a kid i was a kid and what am i doing here you know with all these grown-ups <laughs> did you see did you stay to see any of the other acts or you left immediately what happened no i didn't see anyone I I um I had ventured out of my little tent once during that day, and uh, I didn't have an artist uh, pass. So one, I guess, security hell's angel type um, said, "What are you doing here?" I said, "Oh, uh, I'm supposed to sing," and <clears throat> this was really my moment when I could have escaped, you know, <laughs> I could, but you know, there's some part of you that knows what you're supposed to do. And um, I said, no, I, I sing. He said, yeah, yeah, that's nice. What do you sing? And I said, um, and I sang beautiful people. <laughs> he said, oh yeah, I think I know that song, right? Okay, we'll go back to your tent because, um, you know, you're not supposed to be here. Well, I was going to have to throw you back into the crowd. And I, so I went back to my tent and didn't leave for the rest of the day. <laughs> but um, the other recollection I had was uh, I had developed a really, I, I guess it was from nerves, a bronchial cough, a deep, deep cough. And uh, apparently Joan Baez from the, upper echelon tent heard me and she sent over an assistant uh, or someone with a little flower thing around her head and she said, excuse me, but Joan heard you coughing and thought you might like this. And it was a pot of tea with lemon and honey. Mm. You cannot imagine. It was, and I, I, I said, Joan, Joan, I mean, Joan Baez, Joan? And she said, yes, she heard the coughing and thought you sounded like you really could use this. So she sent this over. 
the goddess, <laughs> the goddess heard me suffering and sent this over. And that was my warm, cuddly Woodstock moment up until I hit the stage. So how long after the festival did you write Lay Down Candles? It was it was rolling around in my thoughts for a couple of weeks. And then it just came because somehow those two parts didn't come together, you know, didn't become a song. It was, well, it really hardly is a song. I mean, it's a chant and it's some verses and uh, held together with a little bridge. And um, so, I mean, it wasn't a, a formulated uh, song. Um, I had written it by the time we, um, we had gone to San Francisco to do, I think um, uh, I was doing Fillmore mm -hmm. and um, we, you know, got to meet Bill Graham and people. And I was uh, thinking that I, I wanted, I finished the song and I had uh, wanted, I, I was thinking, oh, wouldn't it be great if, the Edwin Hawkins singers, because they were on Buddha Records at the time, so I, and they had just come off that hit, Oh Happy Day. So Peter, um, he was, he was, a, he was the P.T. Barnum of, you know, of me. He could talk to anybody, anywhere, anytime, any place, and uh, I was not so. He got um, Edwin Hawkins on the phone and said, oh, Melanie, Melanie, Edwin Hawkins wants to talk to you. And I went, oh, my God. So I, you know, said hi. And uh, he said, yeah, your husband was saying you had a song. Um, I want to ask you a few questions. Does, uh, does the song mention the Lord? And I... I thought, no, no, it doesn't. Um, and, and he said, does it, does it mention Jesus? Uh, no, 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 not really. Um, now I knew this was a quiz, you know. <laughs> uh, oh, I'm sure it's a beautiful song, but I'm so sorry, but we only do religious songs praising the Lord and such. So, uh, we probably wouldn't be able to do that. So I took that as a no, right? Of course, my husband did not take that as a no. He um, he decided we were going to, but I knew it was a spiritual song, you know? I, I, it was appropriate for them to do it. May not have literally been appropriate, but it was in essence, very appropriate. Right. So, um, we went, um, Peter said, oh, we're going to go and see um, the group. They they want to do the song. And and I said, no, no, Edwin Hawkins said no. He said, no, no, he changed his mind. Hmm. I said, oh, really? Didn't sound like he was going to change his mind. He said, yeah, he's changing his mind. So, um, so I went, I had my guitar, and we had some studio time booked to do some other songs. And uh, I'm not sure if we were gonna do Lay Down or not, but we we had some studio time 
booked with uh, Freddie Cretera at the Pacific Studios out in San Mateo. So we um, we went to the auditorium where the Edwin Hawkins singers were rehearsing and the, we opened the door of the auditorium. They're in the middle of a song and little by little, like they all look back at who's that, you know, what's that? And I, I realized Peter, Peter, they did not know I was coming here and I was gonna kill him. I was gonna kill him. And he runs down the, the aisle toward Edwin Hawkins playing the piano and they're talking and Peter's waving his arms and gesturing and Edwin Hawkins is shaking his head, no, no, no. And then Peter waves me in, you know, come on, come on down here. And I'm thinking, oh my God. <laughs> and, and all these voices, there are 46 people on stage singing, you know, and um, uh, it's just so not me, you know, to, to be aggressive like that. Um, so uh, Peter says, sing the song, Melanie, sing the song so we can hear it. And so I, I did, and I started singing the, the chorus. And by the second time I sang the chorus, the, they were starting to sing with me. It was it was really miraculous. <laughs> and Edwin Hawkins just put his arms up. Oh, okay, I guess I'm getting a message. <laughs> no. So um, they went, they came to the studio, uh, the, the, the Sun Pacific studio, and um, we piled in and I went over the song you know, basically the chords and, and the key and everything. And uh, uh, the percussionist from, uh, oh, you know, um, what's his name? <laughs> uh, from a Santana you know, band or? Yeah, oh, Santana. Santana. The Santana percussionist, uh, he was there and Edwin Hawkins and me on the guitar. And I started to sing the song and Peter pressed the button and we started recording. And it was the first take. Wow. I know, it. when you think about that, I was in the room with them singing and they were able to isolate my voice enough so that we could do that. And it was, Miraculous. I, I just recently uh, got in touch with the woman who ran uh, the studio, the studio manager, and uh, her name is Bonnie. And she said, uh, she, she said they talked about that forever. And um, it was it was one of those moments in the studio that nobody will ever forget. And of course, me and the Edwin Hawkins singers and later on Edwin Hawkins when I talked to him. And uh, I always expected that we would like go on the road together, you know, but that wasn't to be. I did a few performances. There was uh, a TV show that I think is on YouTube, um, me and Holland and the Edwin Hawkins singers there. And um, it was it was truly, it. Um, it, it was the music. You know, it was purely the music. 
you remember uh, the first time you played it in concert, you know, after recording it? The first time in concert that I did that song? Mm -hmm. uh, no. <laughs> I, mean, no I don't remember the first no time, problem. but right, I remember the time when I, record, when I was on stage with them. Yeah. That was powerful. That was really powerful. It was one of those songs that I always wanted to have background vocal, backup vocals, you know. Um, it that was the, but now now I do it, and I imply forty six oh, gospel singers. <laughs> do you do you remember the first time you heard it on the radio? Oh my God, that was. A miracle, you know. That was like um, we were we were coming back from uh, from New York. We lived in New Jersey, right over the bridge, and we um, had the car radio on. And all of a sudden, it came on. I was like, "Oh, oh my God!" And uh, yeah, that was the first mainstream hit record because Beautiful People was like a what they called a turntable hit and of course a thing like that doesn't happen now because there's just too much control right. over what's on the radio but uh, it was I had never had a you know mainstream hit and it was on heavy rotation which meant you know they're going to play it a few times mm -hmm. during the uh, playtime and it was a drive time so that was like a big a big deal you know playing that record at drive time it was hardly it was almost like that can't be me you know that can't be me all right so tell me about um look what they've done to my song Mark. what that relates to and when you wrote that um one of these little throat things. <laughs> oh, get her some tea. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. Wow. <laughs> With lemon and honey. Amazing interview. Love you. All right. Okay. So, um, yeah, look what they've done to my song. That was pretty literal because now Peter was the producer. And I would write a song and hear it a certain way. And then Peter would translate that into, how is it going to be a hit record? <laughs> you know? And we had big riffs about that. You know, like <clears throat> I wanted to keep it more how I heard it in my head. And he would go for the, the gusto, you know. And so uh, we were working on a song and I don't know which one it was, but uh, I was very unhappy. And I, I mean, I, it would be like, I never felt the song really lived, you know, before. Um, if, if I didn't perform it a lot with, in front of an audience, I didn't feel like it was, a, a real song yet it, it had to it had to start breathing so um 
of course, the problem was, uh, first of all, Peter was addicted to recording and being in studios and having hit records itself. So that's what he likes. So uh, I'm trying to think what song it was. Uh, I can't remember, but it, we was this was a very literal song. I was actually thinking, look what they did to my song. Look what they done to my song. They tied it up in a plastic bag, turned it upside down. And of course, it's such an, a great analogy for um, so many things, but I wasn't thinking that. This was totally literal. And uh, I was in the vocal booth and Peter said he heard me singing it because I was just sitting there writing songs. Look what they've done to my song. <laughs> and um, and he, I finished it and he recorded it that night. <laughs> Talk about a song not living in front of people before, but, but it was recorded that night. I want to remind people that you've done something that's very hard to do. You took somebody else's song Rolling Stones song, Ruby Tuesday, and you made it your own. Yeah, that, that, um, well, the, the thing about, uh, Ruby Tuesday was, it was me. <laughs> I was Ruby Tuesday. I don't know why I thought that, but, you know, I felt that it was, it was like, it was, it was the song I should have written, you know, and um, and Ruby Tuesday. I just, I, I, I just felt like that was me, and um, so when I heard it, I, of course, I didn't know the chords the right way, so I kind of, I just kind of made it my own. I did make it my own. Yeah. I, um, in yeah. fact, many musicians after the fact would say, oh no, you, that's not the right chord. <laughs> I know, but that's the one I do. And uh, that's the one we used on the record. So um, we keep, we kept it. <laughs> you ever uh, have a cup, meet any of the stones throughout your career and get any feedback? No, I, I went to a, an after concert party, but Again, being a shy person, I wasn't the person to go for photo ops and stuff, but I did have a, a, a photo of Mick Jagger um, with a button and it, it says, here, Melanie's Ruby Tuesday any day. <laughs> All right. and, um, but that's as close as I got to, to having a friendship. <laughs> Tell me about uh, Peace Will Come. The what? Peace. Oh, peace will come. Well, um, I was truly a pacifist. I mean, under no circumstance did I think we should ever agree to go to war. I mean, I was very, very strongly a pacifist, and my it was my response to the Vietnam War. And uh, by the time the song came out, 
the war had just ended. <laughs> and I, I did, um, on one of my albums, it's the live, I think, Carnegie Hall. It's, it said it's really nice to sing an unnecessary peace song. Um, but again, uh, it wasn't, uh, I, I mean, I don't know if it was a hit or not, but I mean, a lot of people knew it, okay. but um, we were, we were, I was always on the road and always performing um, and in the studio. So I don't, I would be, you know, finishing one record, it would be on the radio and I'm recording another one. Melanie, I don't know if you know this, but you must. I mean, you know, you're one of the only females, because I know stuff got re-released, to have three songs on the Hot 100 at the same time. Yeah, yeah. that was pretty amazing. Um, again, at the time, the statistic kind of flew over my head, you know? I didn't... I didn't think of me as a, a person who could, who achieved any sort of, I was darting bullets, you know, really dodging the bullet because for some reason here, and this might be, have something to do with why you and I never got together. I was, um, I, I when I first began, I was coming out of life as an oddball. You know, I didn't have, friends. I was too quirky and weird to be one of the girls in high school, you know. I was just a by myself person and I'd go home and just be grateful that I got through another day <laughs> and sit in my room and sing and write songs and um, with the door closed, you know, nobody heard me or mentioned that I sang and wrote songs. So um, I think uh, I was I was not even slightly believing that I could achieve what I had already achieved. Now you did something. You leave Buddha Records. You, your husband and you start your own label, and you have a number one song with brand new key. How did that come up? Yeah. Oh my God, it's it's irony, irony, extreme irony, because of Buddha Records, I felt so uh, restrained, so boxed in a sort of package that to me, it wasn't me at all. And it was during that time that, um, you know, like papers like the Rolling Stone, which where I was going to be saying, um, they were like my people because I was an oddball, right? I was, I was the, I was the fringe. I was not like mainstream anything. And so uh, when the first review came out on Laydown, uh, they, they panned it. I mean, they said I, that the Edwin Hawkins singers are great, but when Melanie starts to sing, I sound like fingernails against a chalkboard. And, and it, it hurt me to, I mean, emotionally really hurt me. You know, I, I, I thought these are my people, you know, they're, why are they tell, saying this? And um, I thought, 
that that was my group, you know, the Rolling Stone Underground Press. But there was like a, a move or an agenda or something. And I wasn't quite fitting into anything. I didn't quite fit into the mainstream and I didn't fit into, but whatever it was, it felt like I was being targeted. They, right. they had done this huge article and I thought, oh, great, I'm in Rolling Stone, finally, you know, they're gonna say nice things, but they didn't. <laughs> it was, um, they had me on a uh, opposite Bobby Sherman, okay. you know, and kind of, they were making a sort of a comparison. I, forget Bobby were... Sherman. I don't want to hear about Bobby Sherman. I want to hear <laughs> the writing of Brand New Key. The, yeah, so so when, um, and I thought in uh, this maybe had to do with uh, Buddha Records and the way they were perceived because it, it was considered a bubblegum label. Right. And I thought maybe that was it, you know, in part. But our, our time with them was up. You know, the contract was over and I thought we should start our own label. And I had no idea that that um, would fly in the face of mainstream uh, record industry. I had I had just about slapped the face of every major label because I was an artist, the first in the United States, by the way, <laughs> to open an independent label. The Beatles were the only other group as far as I know that and that was in the UK <clears throat> but um tell me about the song no, brand new Kate yes so um so I ironically coming out of all of that our first record that we released was I wrote this song it was a one-off cute little song I I liked it but you know when Peter got a hold of it, he made it a hit. And I knew that it was going to doom me to be cute for the rest of my life. <laughs> and it did. And um, and in fact, it even uh, earned me the term one hit wonder. Even though I had hits right. previous, you know, I became a one hit wonder with Brand New Key. And, um, you know, that was, I, I kind of became a reactionary against it even though it was my own label and it went to number one and I should have been deliriously happy with that. But uh, being a little introvert and kind of very self analytical and uh, you live in your own little dark world, you know, and I was living in my own little dark world and very unhappy that the Rolling Stone was anti-Melanie. What was the incident that oh the incident I mean you were yes you were I, I mean or... I, I had been a vegetarian I know this is a funny place to start <laughs> but um you know what you, you are what you eat Adele Davis <laughs> so um it was uh I was a vegetarian very staunch you know very militant almost vegetarian you know i don't eat anything with a beating heart you know and things like that and i went i wasn't doing well physically health i kept getting sick and so i went to a, a health ranch in escondido california and it was run by dr bernard jensen 
And Dr. Bernard Jensen was what I think he was called the father of iridology right. in uh, America. And he had brought the study of studying the irises uh, to America. And um, he uh, said, you know, I think um, a fast would be a good idea to start out. So I went on a fast and I didn't want to stop fasting. I kept going. I was on 27 days on nothing but water, distilled water. And uh, I mean, I was, I was doing what they called the faster's strut, which is, you know, you walk one inch and then three seconds goes by and then you walk another inch. <laughs> you know, was, I was really, he said, it's time to stop the fast. And I thought, no, no, I, I, I think I'm just getting there, you know? And he said, no, no, Melanie, I really think it's time that you go back to eating food. And, um, uh, you know, so I, I saw, okay. And we talked and he, he said that he thought that I needed animal substance, even though he was a vegetarian and thought that was a good idea for certain types of people. But he said that I wasn't that type. And he thought that I needed to be grounded a little bit with animal substance, as he called it. And that is called meat. You know? And so uh, I thought I'm about that. And I get a brand new key. I'm trying to get... get it's part of it. It's the whole, it's the reason. Okay. This is it. I promise it's going there. So I am, uh, I break the fast. I go home. He said, my perfect diet will occur to me because I'm so cleansed and, uh, you know, I'll know what to do. But he said, try to include meat a couple of times a week. And I thought, oh, no, I don't think I could do that. Anyway, I was uh, at a flea market, five in the morning with the flashlight, you know, what's your dealer's price? You know, I'd come home with a big bag of stuff. And we were coming home. I had, you know, been home maybe three or four days. And I had broken the fast the way he said on partially cooked grated carrot and partially cooked grated zucchini and maybe a spoon of juice. And uh, I did all of that. And on the way home from this flea market, it was English town, New Jersey was that flea market. Um, it was when people brought their junk to sell. So I, I'm on my way home and I get a whiff of something. I'm hungry and I smell something. And I said, oh, let's go there. And we pull in and it's a McDonald's. <laughs> and this is absolutely a true story. I always go in the guitar car with a little guitar. I had a small hop guitar and um, it's, it's high, high strung, you know, and it, it's just something like to feel out chords and stuff. Um, I went into the McDonald's, I got the um, whole combo, you know, the, the big whatever Mac and the fries and the fiberglass milkshake 
And I no sooner finished that last bite of hamburger when that whole whoosh of memory came back to me of learning how to ride my bicycle and my dad holding the the back of the bike and me saying, are you holding on? Are you holding on? And falling as soon as I knew he wasn't, you know, that and roller skating and roller skating down Suicide Hill where I broke my front tooth <laughs> and my my second tooth, my mom, you know, was so mad at me because she was so proud of my perfect teeth. And uh, that whole memory of all of that came back to me with that bite of hamburger. And I thought of, you know, of bicycles and roller skates and that whole time. And I wrote the song. I absolutely had the whole song written. I was in this van with my big bag of stuff from the English town market, my bag of McDonald's leftover garbage. And I had that song totally done. I got home, I was playing it on the side of the bed and Peter came over and said, what's that? And I said, oh, just, you know, some little silly thing that came into my head while I was coming home. He said, oh, do that part again. You know, I got a brand new, I said, uh-oh. <laughs> I said, no, Peter, I said, that that can't be, you can't, you, no, no. He said, just play that part over again. And I did, <clears throat> he said, Melanie, that's a hit. And I knew it was true. And we cut it and it was out on Neighborhood Records, was it? Okay. So let me just I told you I would get there. <laughs> so I got to remind people that they can go to your Facebook page and uh, of course see the concert, the songs you played at Woodstock. Yes, the concert yes. and Magic Bus. I have a new CD. Right. Um, we can talk about that or whatever. Yeah, yeah. That's 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 just came out. That was a, something you did back what in the early seventies on that show, Magic Bus. Yeah, it was, um, it, the show wasn't called Magic Bus. It was a radio show and the DJ was Curtis Schwartz. And again, you know, coming out of that, my people era, and, and there were people who just discounted me because they were predisposed to believing whatever they heard, you know, oh, here she is one hit wonder and she's pretty and she probably can't sing and she's probably not very talented, but whatever it was. So I went on that show and I could sense he was one of those, you know, <laughs> he was discounting me. So we we recorded, um, it was an interview and just a spontaneous, I sang whatever came out, whatever I was in the mood to do, but I knew that I really, I knew he was going to attack me if if he didn't think I was any good. And something magic happened on the magic bus. Um, halfway through the interview, I got the feeling that he got, he got me, you know, and that I got to see him change his mind. Melanie, you have to stop calling yourself a one-hit wonder. You have a lot of hits. <laughs> I mean, I know, I know. know how many no, people I didn't call myself one. They did. They did. I mean, 
you have so many great songs. You're you're still out there. You're doing concerts now and then, and you know people can go to your Facebook page, see the concert. Uh, the yes. new version of uh, "Without You" is on a new tribute album. And do you have any other uh, immediate plans? Well, during the whole lockdown, etc., I um I wrote a tremendous amount of songs, and Bo and I are working on that. And we're working on a boxed set that should be coming out. I probably shouldn't even talk about that yet, but, um, you know, I have a a site called Patreon, which would be really wonderful if anybody was inclined to um, further support me. I'm totally independent, completely out of the grips of all of it. And, um, that's not that easy. <laughs> well, I've, I've done a few records in my time. And if this were the old days, I would sign you immediately and uh, find, that, and well, find that song you. for you. I have no shortage of songs, but I'm always up for, you know, a new song here and there. You know what I just discovered? Um, and I haven't recorded it yet, but I'm going to, all these years later, I, re, I found Let It Be. Right. I discovered Let It Be. You know, now, this is a funny thing because, you know, I had heard that song a hundred times, but one day I sat down with my guitar and played the chords that I would play, you know, and started singing it. And it became a whole other song, you know? And uh, it's amazing how life can be breathed into a song that that because you have a a a vision of or it it interprets something deep inside you that and it never occurred to me to do that song ever ever before but i do want to uh put that out for sure and um yeah lots of new songs i have um a song that uh is called ruin i'm a ruin ancient temple a shrine to the doomed. I'm a ruin, like the ones in Peru. (laughs) The Mayans left a message like the writing on the wall. First it's rise, then it's fall. Some are conquered. What stands tall is the ruin. We've been over an hour and I haven't gotten to half the questions I wanted to ask you. (laughs) Oh, <laughs> well, we need to do it then. We'll do a part two sometime because this has been great. Um, you, your stories are fantastic. Thank uh, you. I know people know you from all these songs, but I don't, and they know you played Woodstock, but you know, we didn't get the chance to talk about the Isle of Wight and you know, all the other oh, stuff. Oh, right, right. About, Jimmy, but I, Jimmy I gotta, Hendrix. And... Yeah, I got to save it. So that that's fine. But Weren't you voted uh, female vocalist of the year in 72 or something like that? Right. Oh, and I won an Emmy. Yeah. I mean, I won an Emmy. I didn't That's know right. any of this stuff. No, a lot of people don't. You had a we bad, need to pub- educate. bad we publicist. We need to educate them. You had a bad publicist. So I, I hopefully <laughs> will uh, re educate them. And uh, your son, Bo, is very helpful in setting this yeah. up. Yeah. He's very helpful. You rock, Benny. You're awesome. Here, oh, here's my Emmy. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. Now, what did you get that for? I wrote a song called um, uh, The First Time I Loved Forever, 
It was the theme for the TV show, Beauty and the Beast. Right. Okay. And um, I won an Emmy. I didn't even show up for the Emmys because I didn't think that I had a chance in hell. But, and not only that, I was, you know, I didn't like the way I looked and I was, didn't you want to do it. You look fantastic. Oh, thank you. And your voice, I mean, you sound fantastic. This new recording that you did of Without You. Um, oh, thank you. I hope it's. Yeah, my son, my son produced the whole thing. Right. He uh, did mom, the, mom, did, mom did everything. Mom, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you, Denny. No, so it's been a pleasure. That's Melanie, the first lady of Woodstock, discussing some highlights of her career. Look for her new recording of Without You. Thanks for listening to The Rock Podcast. We're available on all the usual platforms, wherever you get your podcasts, and we have a video version on YouTube as well. You can also sign up to our channel, and you'll be notified when a new episode is released. It's free, no charge. The Rock Podcast is now the number one podcast for classic rock, so I thank you for listening. Find us at the website, therockpodcast.com. Also, we have a Facebook page, and you can send your comments, questions, suggestions, whatever, to me at hello at therockpodcast.com. That's hello at therockpodcast.com. Also, check out one of our sponsors, AuthenticRockCollectibles.com. I'm Denny Somak, and that's it for this episode. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.